I'm Evan Smith, the CEO of the Texas Tribune, and you're listening to Conversations with the Texas Tribune, a rebroadcast of the Tribune's extended sit-downs with the most interesting, influential, and iconic figures in politics and public policy. This week, the complicated nexus of faith and policy. Is separation of church and state, a core principle of American democracy, at odds with freedom of religion? Does freedom of religion necessarily mean freedom from religion? Is it too much to ask lawmakers to leave piety out of the laws they pass and the budgets they write? And is it too much to ask clergy to keep politics out of the pulpit? The humanitarian crisis at the Texas-Mexico border is an extreme example, though it's one of many, in which this clash of public purpose and private belief verges on inevitable. So what to do? And how to think about it? To sort through all this, we asked our old friend Anna Marie Cox, the host of the Crooked Media podcast with friends like these, to moderate a discussion at the 2018 Texas Tribune Festival, featuring three civically engaged spiritual leaders in Texas. Andrew Doyle, the Episcopal Bishop of Texas, Mara Nathan, Senior Rabbi at Temple Beth El in San Antonio, and Father Bruce Neely of St. Austin's Church in Austin who three years ago was named a Missionary of Mercy by Pope Francis. Their conversation was recorded live on Friday, September 28th, 2018, at Capital Factory in Austin. Conversations with the Texas Tribune is presented by Walmart. As the state's largest private employer with nearly 170,000 Texas associates, Walmart was proud to sponsor the 2018 Texas Tribune Festival. At the heart of the company's culture is a commitment to serving the needs of its customers and the communities it calls home. Learn more about Walmart's impact in Texas at corporate.walmart.com. And by the Texas Tech University System, a problem-solving institution that produces leaders who act on bold initiatives to improve lives. More at texastech.edu. Bruce Neely is in the middle here. Um, he is an evangelist and missionary based at St. Austin Church. He's the past director of evangelism uh, for the U.S. Council of Bit Conference of Bishops. And he is a missionary of mercy. For Pope Francis, yes. Um, and this is the opposite of a fun fact, but he uh, ministered at Ground Zero. Right. Um, and a fascinating little uh, piece of, of, of that uh, story is, uh, although you were very understandably filled with anger at the injustice, right. the first words out of your mouth when you were to pray were... Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Make us instruments. I replaced a Franciscan priest, Father Michael Judge, who was the first martyr of Ground Zero. So the breath, the Holy Spirit kind of came out. Um, that is actually one of the reasons I mentioned that, and I, I don't believe in accidents, is that's the prayer I say every night, is the prayer of St. Francis. So, uh, thank, Welcome. Thank you for being here. Thank you. Um, Mara Nathan is a senior rabbi at the Temple Bethel in San Antonio. She is a flautist who studied at Juilliard. Um, and I, I, I think it's really cool, and your bio says it's relevant. So, 
it's a fun fact. That is legitimately a fun fact. Um, and I read an old interview with you where you said you never planned to get involved in politics or have your politics and your faith kind of intertwined. Um, but, and this is the quote that the but money But coming quotes. to Texas will do crazy things. <laughs> it does, something in the water. There's, apparently in Austin, there is literally something in the water. Um, when there have been attacks against people's civil rights, it's hard to remain silent. So, welcome. Thank you. And then this person, very unassuming person to my right here, uh, dressed to stay in the background, uh, subdued. Is, subdued, is Andrew Doyle. He's the Bishop of the Episcopal Diocese of Texas, author of Unabashedly Episcopalian, which I didn't know was a thing, and uh, more, more uh, relevant to our discussion today, Unity in Mission, a Bond of Peace for the Sake of Love, which is about... It was actually uh, talks about uh, our diocesan work to uh, come together both as traditionalists and progressives and make room so that uh, people could have uh, same-sex marriage in our diocese uh, and kind of parallel the conversations in the wider community. So talks a little bit about that. Yeah. I think the idea um, and any experience you can bring to bear to the idea of opening up a space where we can disagree but still... Right. Right be together, I think is welcome in this particular period of time. And when I was doing my research on you, my fun, fa not fun fact, but a question I will, I will have in my mind, uh, our mutual friend Evan Smith did an interview with you when you became bishop. And in that innocent time, in 2009, he asked you, why do you think we people disagree? And you said, we live in a consumer culture that relies on the satisfying of our personal desires and I have to say, I read that, and I was like, that seems so quaint now to think that our differences are about consumerism. I don't necessarily think it's wrong. It still might be the right diagnosis. But it just feels like our differences are so great. So I want to follow up on that in a bit. Um, but to begin... And I, I t said this to all of them backstage, which is that, you know, I think we can have a real, we're going to talk about faith specifically. We're going to talk about maybe some theological things and some policy things. But always when I have people in front of me who talk to people for a living, talk to, to congregation, to have, have important one-on-one -on -one talks um, with, you know, civilians who aren't necessarily always talking about politics, I want to hear what they're hearing. So... Kind of in, in light of what is technically the track that this panel is on, which is the Trump administration, I'm especially curious if, any, if you've seen changes in the past couple years in the kinds of conversations you're having. And if you aren't having changes, that's also interesting. If the concerns and cares that people bring to you are the same that they've always been, that would be nice to hear too. But why don't we just go ahead and talk about what's happening with your community. Yes, Trey. So the congregation that I serve is a reform congregation, which is the more liberal um, movement of Judaism um, across the spectrum. Um, but in San Antonio, we have about 10,000 Jewish people in the community. And so unlike other metropolitan areas, even Austin, that has two major reform synagogues, we are more or less the, the reform synagogue in the city. We have a smaller um, congregation, about 70 families, and we're about 1,000 families. So. Um, so what that means is, unlike other metropolitan areas where people might gravitate to a rabbi or a culture that is more specific to their political or cultural leanings, we have a congregation that has a huge spectrum of both 
political perspectives, social perspectives, also economic perspectives, and um, there are members, our congregation's almost 150 years old, so we have people who have just arrived in San Antonio and are new, and then we have people who are sixth generation congregants. Um, and we, for sure, have a, a, a pretty moderate to liberal core of members, meaning the people who show up um, to services week in and week out and participate in our programming, but we also have a definite, far more conservative group in our congregation, um, and we have conservative people who feel like they're the only conservatives amongst their friends and feel uncomfortable with that, um, and we have conservatives who maybe stay away because they understand, they don't want to leave the congregation, but they understand that the conversation that's happening in general is on a more liberal um, or moderate um, tenor. But it's particularly important to me in our congregation that the space is still one where everyone can come and connect on from a Jewish perspective. So we don't really talk about politics ever on the pulpit or the bima, as we call it in Judaism. That's that you know the stage, right? The lifted the lifted space. But I always find just by using texts that come from the Hebrew Bible, from the Jewish tradition, um, we just kind of default to a moderate progressive stance because that's what. Judaism teaches. That's what the prophets teach about taking care of the vulnerable in our midst and giving voice to those who don't have voice. So um, it's it's a very challenging time. I think those. If I, you know, we were we were in a we went we attended a, a session earlier about um, is social media bad for democracy, <laughs> and um, the conversation that we all live in our own little bubble of, you know, our. Um, the algorithmic bubble of our own perspectives. Um, looking at my Facebook feed, there are a lot, a lot of angry people today um, that I saw. But I also know I've got congregants who maybe don't feel that way, and that feels that feels scary. I know for those who know they disagree with each other, and it's very important to us to keep the synagogue space as a an unpolitical space. Um, that doesn't mean we're not involved in action, but politics for politics' sake, we try to keep away. Maybe we'll follow this with all of you because I am curious like how one does that, like literally how you do that. And But I think that's something that everyone here has to address, so maybe that is the second round of questions. Anyway, Father Neely. Um, I come from a, a highly ecumenical interreligious background. To be honest with you, most of my friends were Jewish when I was growing up. I became a Catholic priest through my Jewish friends. Uh, grew up in Long Island, New York, what, 10 miles from where you grew up. And um, my Jewish friends, uh, through the National Conference of Christians and Jews and just through normal friendships, got me involved in the civil rights movement. I decided to become a priest because I wanted to become a preacher like Martin Luther King and work for justice like my Jewish friends. So that's been, uh, my father's best friend was an Episcopal priest. So at my first mass, the Jewish, my Jewish friend, my best friend, read my, at the, the Exodus story, and my father's best friend did the second reading from St. Paul. So, as a Catholic, I've always felt extremely open by that ruach, that breath that we began with, the Holy Spirit, to make us sensitive to people, no matter where they're coming from. The heart is restless until it finds rest in thee, says St. Paul. So, I've been personally very involved with immigration. Uh, there in the border, uh, Rio Grande, Rio Bravo, 
both sides uh, of the border, helping uh, those children, you know, from uh, Central America, escaping poverty, uh, gang warfare, uh, and uh, etc. the problems, to be reunited with their family and to come across in the first place, and their families to come across and be reunited. So immigration, DACA, which is a related issue, um, has been uh, foremost in my gut, and uh, people like Emma Lazarus, you know, the, uh, the Jewish uh, Sephardic Jew, who gave us, give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free, has been part of my own passion. Um, so, what do I find in my church? I find a lot of division. Well, first of all, we all know that, uh, I'm sorry to say that in the Catholic Church we have the, this sexual abuse crisis. Uh, among the clergy, I'm sorry to say that we're dealing with, please pray for us, uh, that um, whatever happens be for purity, for justice, and uh, the will of God. So that's been a big distraction, if that's the right word. But in addition to that, we have all, we're also a divided church. People like me, very involved with immigration, with the poor, with health care, uh, with uh, civil rights, human rights, fill in the blank, which is part of our Catholic social teaching and very much the passion of Pope Francis, we also have a very, uh, another group very much involved in the pro-life issue, specifically anti-abortion. And um, that particular perspective, pro-life, pro-poor, is dividing our church, even though as Catholics, we're supposed to be both. We're supposed to believe that you have knit me together in my mother's womb. That just as we should not grab a little baby from the mother's womb, we should not grab children from their parents through deportation. So we need both. And um, I went to a baby shower not too long ago. My heavens, how boring, but don't say that. How do you go to those? Anyway, besides Jews that... Jews don't do baby showers. Oh, my... Oh, how do you go through it? Well, they were going... There must be something in the womb of the mother because they were paying an awful lot of money, even naming whatever it is. So there must be something there. So the baby shower, I actually was able... I actually persuaded the mother not to abort because I'm also very passionate about that issue and I wound up baptizing the baby and I've persuaded many mothers uh, to do the same. We have the Gabriel Project in the Catholic Church to help mothers with problem pregnancies to get through it. But hopefully someday it'll all come together. We have a divided United States. Here's the Austin statesman. He said, she said, but I think part of what I just got through saying is part of this. And hopefully the Holy Spirit will pull it all together. Thank you. Amen. Thanks. <laughs> We, uh, as Episcopalians, we like baby showers, and uh, we, do, we have really nice ones, so maybe, maybe you need to come to ours. I don't know. What a snoozer. <laughs> you know, the, uh, I think my jurisdiction, if you will, stretches all the way across uh, East Texas to Tyler. Underneath Dallas includes Waco, then Austin, and the Houston area, Galveston. And, and so, as you can imagine, that's a lot of people with different opinions and ideas uh, about politics, about religion, about theology. Uh, and uh, I would say that in uh, your question asking, have things changed? I do. I think things have changed. I think that um, 
uh, there, was, there was conversation and division within the community prior, but I, I, I felt as though that in some way was um, conflict uh, within the greater community that was making its way into the churches. Uh, this uh, most recent conflict around politics specifically uh, is uh, deeply ingrained in the very nature and conversation about church and theology and politics. And that's it's a different thing. And so what's been fascinating is to hear echoed within, which makes me pause and think about what have we been doing, but to hear echoed within our communities this idea that actually faith is private, uh, that faith has no conversation uh, outside of what we do on Saturday or Sunday, uh, and that it has no place uh, in the wider conversation about uh, the good of the community and uh, how we treat one another and uh, how we might work together, as uh, Roman Coles talks about, moving politics outside of uh, the, the kind of Washingtonian politics. Can we actually get diverse people together to have conversations about what is good for the community and how we're going to respect other people? So I'm really surprised about that because it, what it tells me is that the kind of fractured fairy tales and narratives that help us each navigate our workplace, our family life, our friendship circles, and our religious settings has really uh, set, up, set us in a spot where actually some of the best work that uh, religion and faith can do is bring people together for conversation. In fact, we ought to be the ones who are able to have those kinds of deep conversations, and yet we are simply parroting the same divisions that I see out in the yeah. community. And I, I, so I'm, I'm, I'm curious about that and what is it going to, how do we, I think we have a responsibility, if you will, to as faith leaders to recenter that conversation around the, the nature of character and virtue and narrative that is, uh, that works towards the health and wellness and good uh, that can come when people of diverse backgrounds uh, diverse ethnicities, diverse opinions actually work together for the common good. And I, I think, uh, if, if you will, in some ways, um, if we don't figure this out, then the American experiment itself, uh, if it hasn't already gone too far, is at a brink. Uh, that may be very difficult to pull back from. It's not to say that somehow religion has the capacity to redeem that. I'm just saying that if that other area of our common American life, uh, whether you be Buddhist, Christian, Jew, uh, even uh, agnostic, atheist, if we're not able actually to come together beyond that at grassroots level and discuss very difficult and painful discussions, we are lost. Uh, because I don't think, as Aristotle thought, that politics itself has much internal or external good to it anymore. I think we've moved far beyond that. I'm interested in, in kind of a, a through line I, I think I heard through all of your responses, which had to do with um, all three of you spoke a little bit about how your faith impels you to action, mm -hmm. right? Um, and that's what I found with my faith, that um, uh, I am to be of service in the world and, and the way that I interpret, you know, uh, what Jesus wants from me <laughs> is to be of service to the poor, to the needy, to the least among us. 
And that has a political, there's a political agenda there. It, it meshes with a certain kind of politics today. Unfortunately, it is a certain kind of politics. But what I also hear from you all is that the faith space, almost literally the space where we practice our faith, has to be welcoming. Mm. But if we are impelled to action, and those actions are kind of specific, like let's say around um, the border crisis, around the uh, baby Gitmo, um, and we have specific opinions about that. I think all three, all four of us share horror at what happened. Unfortunately, in this day and age, that was a political position. It had a specific political flavor. So how do we, how do, we do both? So I, I think certainly the challenge for myself and I think for all of us is that we assign a political position to it rather than pulling back and focusing on the humanitarian aspect of any given one of these things. So um, there is an action, for instance, going down to um, Ursula this weekend to bring humanitarian supplies to those facilities that are, don't seem to have enough supplies. And, and I think on, on, it's certainly there is a political agenda there, but, but the goal was not to focus on that political agenda, which is to say, regardless of what you think about the laws um, having to do with immigration policies in the United States, whether you think they're good or not, whether you are comfortable or uncomfortable with people coming into our country, no one wants children to starve. No one wants people to not have enough to drink. No one wants people to not have enough clothing or shelter, right? I mean, mm. be, and to assume that if you are okay with the immigration policy, that means you don't care if those people are suffering is a false claim. And that's what separates Republicans and Democrats or conservatives and liberals and seeing each other as the enemy, um, as opposed to saying, no, I just don't agree with the way the administration is handling this, or I wouldn't, we, you know, we might have the same goal, but we think about going to get to that goal in a very different way. Um, it doesn't mean we have to agree with each other, but then what it means is, I don't think you're evil because you support the administration, even though I am vehemently against the administration, but I know you as a human being and you're a kind, generous, thoughtful person. You pick up my child and take them to school if I need you to. You would bring a meal to me if I was sick. Right? You are a good person. I don't understand why you believe what you believe, and you don't understand why I believe what I believe, but I know that in your heart, you're a genuine, kind human being, and you are worthy of God's blessing, and you're worthy of my love. So if we could focus on that part, mm -hmm. and then maybe have a thoughtful conversation about where we're coming from, and if we have the same goal, what are the compromises we can make to get to that goal? And I get that that's very high in the sky, but at least to have that, um, that goal, right. I, th I think we're, in a, we're better situated to have fruitful conversations. And I agree. And I think that that, is a, that perspective is like in my, yes, in my, my perfect world, that would be how we all approach, not just in matters of faith, that's how we approach politics in general, the world in general is through the eyes of looking at, we all, I assume we all want the same basic things, let's, let's talk about... Um, what, uh, where we, how we get there. That's what politics used to be, uh, uh, sort of. No. What? That's what we like to yeah, yeah, think yeah. it was. Right, 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 oh, yeah, yeah, right, 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 right. Yeah. Well, that's what sometimes... I haven't seen Hamilton yet. I'm really looking forward sure, to it, sure. but if you've... I mean, yeah. yeah, that is what how we at least was... Well, I'd say at least that's how kind of uh, even the ideal of politics was. I actually now wonder if that's even how people think of an idealized version of politics. 
And the reason why I, I wonder about even if we can agree that we want to agree is going back to your algorithmic bubbles, which is that I know people who would say, well, there wasn't a crisis at the border, and those kids are, that's summer camp. So that, that's the yeah. But I, don't, I also want to hear what you guys have to say about this, so. I wouldn't add much. I mean, that yeah. was very beautifully said, a very sensitive. She probably does that for a living or something. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. uh, but sometimes we do have to be upfront. I, as a preacher, I mean, I have to share what I believe, what my church teaches, and uh, my church teaches that the uh, present policy of the United States on immigration is wrong. I mean, I don't know what else to say. It's very insensitive. And there have been times when religions, believe it or not, have come together to affect politics. Mm -hmm. um, Alexis de Tocqueville, you know, who was such a, an outstanding commentator on American de democracy in America, said that uh, religion in America is the foremost political institution. He was just bamboozled by the fact that there was a connection. You know, in France, where he was coming from, there was this disconnect after the French Revolution. He was saying, gee, you know, here's, here's a country with the, with the soul of a church. <laughs> There's religion all over the place. And um, we had the, the Great Awakening, you know, just before the American Revolution, when all of the churches that, unfortunately, Catholics and Jews weren't part of it per se as institutions. But the 13 colonies came together because people prayed People like John Wesley, John, uh, 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 George Whitfield, you know, the founder of Princeton University, Jonathan Edwards, they prayed, they came together, and things happened. Uh, the Second Great Awakening, Sojourner Truth, um, uh, uh, Charles Finney, again, producing the women's rights movement, the abolition against slavery, all of these social movements came from religious people who prayed and got their act together and put aside differences. Uh, since then, people like Emma Lazarus, people like uh, Mother Jones, you know, the Irish immigrant who founded the United Mine Workers, uh, people who put their religion out there into the public square made a difference. And then, as I shared uh, before, the civil rights movement. There you have definitely had not only ecumenism, but into religious work, uh, faiths coming together. And what came out of it? Political change. The Voting Rights Act, the Civil Rights Act. You know, we're a little bit better because religious people got down on their knees and prayed and worked together. I think that's still possible, frankly. Right. So, so I just think, and yes. And I want this to be a dialogue. You guys feel free to like. I just think the challenges, and this is, this is, I think, in some ways, how we've wound up where we are right now, is we forget that there was an opposition mm -hmm. and that it's only looking back in history that we say, yes. You know, Americans came together for the civil rights movement. No, they didn't. Some people did. And some other people Catholics. were killed, and some people were lynched, and some people were jailed, right? And it's only looking back. So when Obama was elected, people said, look how far we've come. Racism is over. And we ignored the people who were like, I can't believe we're in this nightmare. Someone said to me just the other day, well, I survived the last eight years, and, I t and it was okay, and so, you know, I'd... I'm happy with where we are right now. And that would have never even dawned on me. I was so proud of where we were and how we were progressing. Um, it's pretty easy to forget 
that there's always another side. And we're here in Texas, right? So the South isn't always so happy about how the Civil War <laughs> turned out, right? I'm sure you've all seen Confederate flag. I mean, the last few years with all the monuments just goes to show that there's always people, as much as there is progress and we're happy with that, there's always people yeah. who are not. And I, when, uh, people involved in immigration activism particularly might look at the Obama years and say, um, so yeah, not so great. Um, and also, I grew up in Texas, and I, I learned it as the war between the states, so... Exactly. And I grew up on Long Island, and we definitely learned about it as the North <laughs> and my, the great, South. My great-grandfather... And they were bad, and we were good. Yeah. My great-grandfather great worked on the Underground Railroad, so he, he had that perspective. You know, I think the, a big piece of this, though, is the, the assumption that, that we have that if the right side would just win, we would be okay. Uh, meanwhile, both sides are uh, in, interested in individual human flourishing and not communal flourishing. They're in, and you say, well, wait a minute, no, no, because, and here's the thing, they are very interested in tribal flourishing, which is very different than the flourishing of a community in general, which means that they are uh, using uh, media uh, and, and money, and uh, they are carefully uh, building tribal uh, groups uh, and putting them together in order to win the office for the sake of power uh, and money. Uh, and, um, and, and I think that it's very much a piece of our, uh, our life as Americans to desire human flourishing, individual flourishing. But if we believe that actually that will carry us to the greater good of communal flourishing or that one side has all of the answers, we really shut out the potential power uh, of what happens when people do come together. And so, again, I just want to kind of press in to say that... Um, uh, the, the history isn't <laughs> uh, as we might like it uh, to be, except that I think what it may teach us is that trying that over and over again is not working, and that something's going to have to change in uh, local, uh, by that I mean town and citywide uh, politics, uh, all the way to state and nation, uh, and that uh, it's not going to be a religious, uh, that we're not going to somehow, we're, you know, here we are, uh, and we're going to fix it. That's not what I'm saying at all. I actually think it's going to take us getting outside of our own perspectives to really work with people across the aisles mm -hmm. for the common good of the whole, uh, and that we do have things to say about the stranger and the immigrant and the poor. Yes, we do. Uh, but we also have something to say about the whole community uh, and what, what does that mean and who's part of that and how do we, how do, we do that work? Um, I also, so I really appreciate what Mar had to say about, I mean, we sort of now, I think, can shorthand it as this ideal of politics where we all agree the, what the greater good is and we're just going to, like, talk about, we're going to discuss how to get there. We all agree children should be fed and the poor should, should also be fed, you know. Um, and it, to me, that ties a little bit into this idea that all of us have mentioned, which is that we're on some sweep of progress, that maybe there's some problems there, but that we, we eventually, even idealized, eventually we've come together and civil rights are good, you know. 
um, uh, civil rights are good. Let's just agree that we all agree civil rights are good. But I would also point out, and you sort of mentioned this, which is there was a time where that was not an assumption. The idea that that could not be taken as a given, that especially sitting here in Texas, we could call for a show of hands, and there'd be people that are like, yeah, no, I don't think that people with different colored skin are the same. I don't. And I, I'm related to some of those people um, who would not, it was not embarrassing to them at all. There was no sense that I am a racist if I say that. It was just like, I believe that people are unequal. Um, and that's, and, and to me what that does is show us the power actually of um, shaming people and the power of creating a social situation where some kinds of ideas, we do start to say, oh, maybe that's not okay to say that. Mm-hmm. And I, I kind of want to throw this back in the religious angle because... Um, to me, that might be controversial to you guys because we're supposed to be creating these spaces where we're welcoming. But some ideas aren't welcome. But we're also called to convert. And, I was uh, going to ask you about evangelism, so yes, Well, proceed. evangelization <laughs> means a, a, a process leading to conversion. I think Martin Luther King converted some people. I think hearts were changed because he had that tremendous gift of preaching and of witnessing to what he was preaching. Um, I think America was largely changed. Now, you're quite correct. Not everybody. I mean, some people, uh, some of us still have a long way to go. But for heaven's sakes, there was a change in the United States through people like King and the people in the movement that supported him. So uh, I think I've said enough. Well, I I think that there's a... So here's an interesting piece. I'm not sure that continuing... Yes... There are some ideas that are not good for the whole community. I'm that, and I don't think we're actually making progress. I think there are things that are different in life, but I don't think that we're making a whole lot of progress. I don't think we're progressing to some natural end where we're getting better and better and better. You know, um, the 1930s theology, uh, that was undone. We learned through Nazi Germany that that is, in fact, not the fact of uh, the way in which human civilization, we are broken people. We don't do well. We, uh, we, you know, going back to the consumer thing, I actually want to take care of me first. That's actually a natural. Jonathan Haidt talks about our kind of emotional need uh, to take care of ourselves first. And so the question is, I don't, uh, that, that you pose to us is not one of morality. It's not like somehow we're going to get all the morality correct on our way to progression. The question is really about, uh, you know, when you talk about the people uh, that, uh, that have influenced you, that you, that you, we're talking about characters of virtue that make up the very best of what it means to be human, right. uh, as opposed to morality, right, wrong, do this, do that. And I think if we, if we can enter in a conversation like that, we're a lot better off in trying to solve some of the issues that face us versus and dealing with the difference in ideas around morality than we are if we begin always from the moral discussion point. I want to go, you mentioned the word shame, which is a really powerful word. It's not really a word we use in Judaism a lot, but it's still a really powerful word. Um, because when people are told what they believe is wrong and they should, like you said, I shouldn't say that anymore, that's not actually changing their beliefs. No. It's only when you get to meet other people and know them as actual human beings that you can maybe begin to change. I was 
listening to NPR this morning. I know, shocking for the Texas Tribune Festival. Yeah. And uh, there was a story core, maybe someone else heard it, of um, a young man who had been at a Trump rally and um, almost got attacked. And a young Muslim woman in hijab saved him. And they were reunited to have a conversation about what they had thought about each other. Well, not about each other as actual people, but about the stereotype of each other. And it turned out that she had come from Iran in middle school and had this really, you know, she had felt really ostracized and separate because of the way she looked, and I'm sure at that point her accent and, and whatnot. And he had been homeschooled and had really had very little exposure to people that were different than him at all. And this moment where this person who was completely different from him and he had been taught to hate acted in a way of graciousness and love and concern for one human being to another, it was a moment where he questioned his beliefs. He was not shameful of them prior. He walked out with his full-on regalia, right? But suddenly he saw this person as just a person who was caring for him as a person, and it opened him up and changed him. So in a congregational space, in a community space, it is great to get up and speak in great platitudes, but it is the conversations, it's the meeting, it's the interchange of one person to another to say, I. I understand we believe differently, and I want to understand why you believe what you believe. Even if I'm gonna walk away and say I still don't agree with you, I'm honoring you as a person with, with a sense of self, and I wanna better understand you. I think we don't try to understand people who are different from us. I think even the people in our own families who we know we disagree with, we tend to unfollow them. You know, Maybe we'll stay friends with them, but we don't wanna hear their, we don't wanna look at their newsfeed anymore, it's too aggravating. Or when we're together, we just completely <laughs> avoid those conversations because they're gonna get ugly so fast. Um, and that's our biggest problem, is we don't have the stamina and the willingness to engage in those difficult conversations from a place of love and respect. Um, it comes from a place of anger and fear and shame, or shaming others for feeling differently than we do. When Pope Francis commissioned us to be missionaries of mercy, this was two years ago, there were like a thousand of us from all over the world. And he says, uh, brothers, um, cover the shame of your people, take it away. That's, he was very strong on taking away shame. He says, and he gave the example of Noah, who I guess one night got drunk and was completely naked on the floor. And uh, one uh, son was kind of making fun of him, but the other son took his coat and covered his father with his coat so that the father would not be ashamed. And Pope Francis says, that's what I want you brothers, that's what I want you to do, cover the shame of people so that they feel loved uh, by God. And again, I just, I, I love your person to person approach because I think that's the way to go really. St. Paul says, with the Greeks I become Greek, with the Jews I become Jews, with the weak I become weak, I become all things, to really empathize with everyone. I really appreciate you pushing back on the word shame, because it, I, I think you're entirely correct that shame doesn't keep people from believing. In fact, they can entrench them. And maybe this is a really important place where faith and politics just go separate directions, which is in politics, it doesn't matter if you agree with me or not as long as you obey the laws that I set, right? It doesn't matter if you don't think you should serve gay people in your store because I'm telling you that I have decided that you have to do that. And I don't need you to think that they're equal. I will just make you follow this law. And there's a point to doing that. Like, politics says, 
we don't care if you. It's agree. not politics. That's law. Right. Yeah. Good. It's law. Okay. It's legislation. It's right, legislation. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's yeah. legislation. Legislation doesn't care to convert. Right. Legislation is not about conversion. We are all con- interested in conversion. I am actually interested in conversion. So um, maybe everyone here knows this, but I have this podcast called With Friends Like These. And it's about talking about difficult conversations, talking about our differences. And the reason I started it is because I married a Republican. Mm. Um, and he's... Perfect. Yeah. Um, he's so cute. Um, he's not a, and he's not a Republican anymore. And people, sometimes I get high fives about that when I tell people that. Like on people on my side, they're like, way to go. And I'm like, oh yeah, I, <laughs> it wasn't me. It's, very, it's a very humbling thing. It wasn't me. And in fact, um, when we first realized that we disagreed about politics, which, long story, first we didn't, we didn't realize. Um, we fought, we fought, we fought, we fought. And then um, a guidance, uh, you know, marriage counselor was like, maybe you shouldn't talk about politics. And instead, we had these ground rules where I know a little bit more than he does about politics, um, where if he wanted to talk about politics, I would say, do you want my opinion? Or do you want, like, kind of the, you know, whatever the Wikipedia entry is on this? And I never, I never tried. He knew what I felt, um, but I didn't try to tell him that he should agree with me. And then I'll try to make this short. And then uh, at some point in 2015, uh, we were watching TV together, and it was during a Republican debate, and he was like, if this is what Republican is, I'm not anymore. And he's not, like, fully woke or anything. (laughs) But it's been really interesting to see, like, this happen without me doing anything. Like... Just show, we watched some documentaries together. We watched Thirteenth together. Everyone, uh, it's about Thirteenth Amendment. It's about um, mass incarceration. And John turned to me afterwards, and he's like, "I don't understand why black people don't riot every day." And I was like, "Well, they would get killed." But um, you know, it's he it was it, it's amazing. And I was telling the story to someone else, and they're like, "Well, you know, you did evangelize. You did convert him. You lived something, and he saw it." I mean, I, I've, I found 13th to be very powerful, particularly because Republicans and Democrats mm-hmm. were, are, continue to be to blame for the system that we exist in now. And, I mean, lifelong Democrat grew up in an incredibly liberal, socially liberal home, but I have a lot of friends who are Republicans, and I don't think they're bad for being Republicans. And I think there are Republicans who say Democrats are bad because they're Democrats, and Democrats who say Republicans are bad because they're Republicans. And I do think, and if we've, I mean, I don't mean to push back, I, I just feel like this is part of a challenge that I have as well, that when I have friends who, who have these beliefs that I just don't understand, I see them as, the, as my adversary, but, but they're not. Um, and that's a hard place for me to try to be. And I think um, I was a rabbi in New York prior to coming to Texas where the majority of my community was progressive and somewhat liberal and the Republicans were the minority. Um, And coming to Texas and coming to San Antonio has really pushed me 
to have a much more generous and broad perspective and understanding on where people come from. And even though we may disagree on a lot of different policy ideas and issues, that you know, as I was saying before, it doesn't mean that they're not generous, kind people. And sometimes we do have conversations and debates in, within which we disagree, even and strongly. And I'm not married, right? So my my husband is is a Democrat. So. Okay. Well, I don't want to. Maybe maybe I said maybe I framed this wrong because like I don't think it's a win or a convert. I, what I think happened is it, I'm we decided it was okay to disagree and that we were going to love each other no matter what. And what happened is that I, I, when I say, I mean, it's hard to sort of put into words, like I see someone who now seems open to things and open to conversations that we could not have before. So I wonder if the labels are really our greatest yeah. barrier. Because probably you did agree on more than you thought you did, but because you had the label as Democrat and he had a label of Republican, you just assumed you didn't. I want to bring this back to faith, because this yeah. is actually a story to me about evangelism. Right. And I want to know what you, because what, what other, spoiler alert for this is we're both in recovery. And the friend that pointed me out, that pointed yeah. out this, that was just a form of evangelism, um, is uh, we have a saying in AA, which is, is a program of attraction, not promotion. Well, let, let me address that yeah. very issue. Yeah. I think the Holy Spirit brought it up. Right. <laughs> Perhaps our greatest American contribution to world religion are the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, in which people looked literally to a higher power. And voila, they also discovered that the higher power was also the inner power. So what happened? People came together who were thirsting, who were hungry, who were in the pits as we are in today. Right? Dr. Bob and Bill W. They were in the pits. Thanks be to God, they came into the home of a woman who had a bit of wisdom, Henrietta S. And she got the two of them together and said, okay, fellas, go to it. <laughs> and they went to it. One said, I only have a couple of minutes. And the other one said, you're pretty thirsty, huh? They called out the BS of one another and began a conversion program. But a conversion program that was liberating, that was healing. Later on, they got the help of a Jesuit priest, you know, to kind of give a little bit of a theological input, spirituality input. My point being that conversion doesn't have to be you're wrong, shame, bad. It could be just the opposite. The truth shall make you free. And uh, I would just like to say that for me personally, the, the 12 steps of AA, OA, NA, SA, all of the other 12-step programs, for me, has always been a model for evangelization. And what is the 12th step? Evangelization. Yeah, carry this message. To others so that they could attain sobriety so that you stay sober. I stay sober by helping anyone else to stay sober. Isn't that the basic of, basis of all world religions? Amen? <laughs> um, Andy, do you want to say anything? I, I was just thinking about, um, you know, all of... Um, much of political philosophy is deeply rooted in uh, Aristotelian philosophy. But one of the things that people miss is that he couldn't imagine people having a discussion who weren't either related or friends. Mm. 
that, uh, that actually friendship was a key ingredient uh, underpinning the whole. And so this, was, yeah. this is what More reminds me, that. right? Mm -hmm. and, and that, um, uh, that if, of course, in our tra tradition, my tradition, uh, Jesus is very clear about calling one another friends, no longer slaves, no longer students, no longer servants, but that, you know, we're going to be friends. Uh, and that, and so what that makes me think about is that friendship is very much uh, rooted in common experience and shared story so that you have the, the two guys who come together right in the midst of their own suffering. They find out they share a story together, so they become friends in the midst of a community of friends, if you will. And so just to say that, again, um, I really believe that there is a component here of this relational business, uh, which is that, it, uh, and this is not going to get solved by those who want us to vote for them. Mm -hmm. That actually it begins in the one-on-one -on -one relationships. It begins in a conversation like this. It begins in a conversation with you. It begins in a conversation. That getting to know one another beyond our differences for the sake of a common experience makes us friends with a shared story. And I think that there's a very key piece here. And, and uh, uh, there was a time... <laughs> in uh, Washington uh, prior to when all of the uh, representatives and senators would go home to campaign in which they and their spouses would live together in D.C. and they would go to dinner together and have parties together and talk together outside of the business of politics. But that has changed. When they are not in session, when they are not there to vote, they leave. They go home. They go home to where? Their tribes. No, they go home to raise money, which is even worse than well, what you're what talking about. Well, that's what I'm talking about. They go home to their tribal affirm uh, Because that's the thing. Friends do not agree on everything. The friendship is the higher value, the higher virtue, than it is the agreement of one, any one something. And so this is, this is the piece. And uh, many of our wise politicians, who, by the way, we're on opposite sides of the aisles, are naming this as a value missing in today's culture of politics. Yeah, uh, and right. so I think it's deeply rooted in our tradition, yeah. but it is not something that belongs to our traditions. It is something that is part of human nature. Now, I could talk about it from the frame of reference, like Jonathan Sachs talks about this garden that we're to be friends with, and he's a, a rabbi in England. He talks about this kind of what I would call a garden social imaginary that is unrooted not by Adam and Eve's fall, but rather by Cain and Abel's murder of one another. Mm -hmm. That here is the true kind of entering, like when we begin to consume one another and murder one another, what's happening? And Jesus says, look, uh, if you've got an enemy, if you've got uh, someone who uh, you don't like, actually that is akin to murder. He raises the bar and says, even then you are to love even more. Mm. So for the Christian tradition, it's to actually embrace and lean into those places where we have division, that we're, we're called to do uh, that, that work of creating a society that's that's very different. What's happening on the Hill and has been going on over these last few weeks is consumption of one another, trying to get our story. We are eating each other up. Uh, and there is no common uh, sense of, of virtue at all. Uh, no accountability. We were talking about this in the room. There's no sense that I did anything wrong, right? There's no honoring of someone who may have a story that's important for me to hear. 
It's that all of that's gone. There is no relationship. And so consequently, instead of actually raising the conversation to a higher level, to say here in the U.S. we're going to have a higher conversation about politics and virtue and what's good for our community, we are in the midst of political bulwarking that is going to completely just further us along, our greater division. And it's right there in the midst of the Kavanaugh hearings. Wow. Being played out right there in front of us. Amen. Yeah, amen. Um, I'm glad you brought up the Kavanaugh hearings um, because I wanted to sort of point out evangelism happening there. Um, just, I'm going to cry again. Which is, has everyone seen the video of the woman confronting Jeff Flake in the elevator? Trigger warning. It's hard to watch. Um, that happened yesterday. There were some people that were mad about that. There were some people that were like, you know, uh, there was protesters disrupting things, like getting in his face. That, I'm, I am willing to bet that that was on Jeff Flake's mind when he went home last night. And what happened this morning? He called for an investigation. That's evangelism to me, what those women did. That's evangelism to me. That's telling, what I understand evangelism to be also, is I tell my story. I tell my story and I hope you hear me. Um, with that said, I guess I want to offer a chance to hear what people out there are saying, what their stories are. We only have like eight minutes. Maybe we can go a little order, but yeah, sure. We'll start over there. Hi, yeah, my name is Godswell. Yeah, my name is actually oh, Godswell. Oh, all right. Um, hey. So, <laughs> oh, yeah. Can I use the informal the, the, the with you? Or? Let's just say again? It's all, it's all yeah. good. Um, blame my mother. Um, we're Nigerian, so we are particularly religious. But James Baldwin said the most segregated hour in America is high noon on Sunday. Mm -hmm. And my mother is probably shares the same characteristics as an evangelical voter. Mm -hmm. The only difference, though, is their race, and they vote only. Yes, really, like we'll think about it. Right, they, the only thing that really separates how they vote, right, predictive, predictive, predictively, is their race. And I really do appreciate Martin Luther King's tradition and the tradition of faith in terms of promoting social change. And I share your optimism, but I am also cynical, and I wish you guys could talk about this in terms of even as Martin Luther King marched against segregation, the church in certain parts of this country also put, said that. God will forgive murder, he'll forgive philandry, but he won't forgive uh, people who don't want to segregate. And I, because of my experience of racism in this country as a native Texan, I wonder if the church, in terms of its politics, as we go forward, as we see people evangelicals voting for somebody who wouldn't vote in the past eight years, how we're going to move forward and still see like Christianity or the religious traditions of this country still continue to produce social changes in the past. I just want to hear what you have to say. Thank you so much for bringing that up. I actually have, I just almost want to show you right here, don't forget racial reconciliation yeah. um, written in my notebook. That is, uh, I do think that is um, one of the most difficult questions and processes facing us, and I'm going to turn to the experts. So what do we do, guys? We have here in... Uh Austin, uh, courageous conversations on that very issue, so to bring uh, the different churches together to talk about um, racism uh, within the church, outside of the church, to kind of bring about a, a reconciliation uh, and a, a unity. Uh, so uh, your, your question is very well taken, and we do have a very ongoing monthly uh, situation here among the churches uh, in Austin. Plus, we also have uh, Austin Interfaith, 
which is a community organizing uh, institution. Uh, Barack Obama was uh, trained by the Industrial Areas Foundation. And um, by the way, I spent 16 years in the parish uh, where Martin Luther King's last march began. He was shot five blocks from my church. So your question has also touches my gut. I'm just really thinking about the term evangelism, which is being thrown around a lot, and Jews don't evangelize. So, um, but I was really taken with your state, your definition of evangelism. Would you say it again? Uh, this is a program of attraction, not promotion. That one, or which one? No, it's sharing your story. Oh, sharing my story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That is sharing a story. It's telling a story and and helping people hear it. Yeah. Hear it. So, sharing stories about who you are and what you hope for most in the world. Um, to me, doesn't have to be attached to, and then I will accept Jesus as my savior. Oh, no, 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 no. I'm not saying that's what you meant. That's not what I thought you meant at all. No, no, sorry. No, I, I didn't mean that. But I was really taken by what yeah. you defined evangelism is, because you know, to be honest, when priests or pastors say I'm an evangelist, I'm like, oh, okay, great, yeah. <laughs> that's great. I've heard um, that before. Yeah, okay. Um, but what you said really struck me, as we all have our own truth. And if we're honest about who we are and how we see the world and how we hope other people will treat us, right? I mean, our evangelism is love thy neighbor as thyself, right? And that if we treat other people the way we want to be treated and we hope and assume that other people will have our welfare you know, in mind and we should have their welfare in mind, regardless of their faith or their politics or the color of their skin or where they came from, if we were just able to follow that one precept, we'd be in a much better place because we'd be hearing each other's stories and accepting them for who they are and where they are. And, and ideally, showing them love for having the courage to do that. So, I mean, I think that does get to the racial conversation as well, but um, that, I, I, it does. That, that I, your definition of, definition of, of evangelicalism, that's not, a real, that's not a real word, um, and, it inspired me to think about what that can be. I don't think that's what it always is, but I think what it could be in terms of people feeling brave enough to share their truth, true selves. I heard a great um, description of kind of what American evangelism often is, which is um, a rich man trying to convince a poor man that he's hungry and he should buy my bread. Um, but real evangelism is one poor person, one hungry person telling another hungry person where to find bread. And that that doesn't have a religious, it's not about a specific kind of bread, let's say. It's just, this is where I, you can find nourishment here. You keep looking at me every time you say it. <laughs> uh, I, if, if I weren't Catholic, I'd probably be Jewish. <laughs> and I want to I want to bring that directly back to you know the where racial to get a good bagel and schmear. Um, I mean. Racial. Um, I want to bring that directly back to racial reconciliation question, which is that maybe you guys know more specifics than I do. But what I have heard from uh, the people that I know who are trying to do this in churches, it involves a lot of listening. It involves a lot of people bringing, bringing people in and giving testimony to their experiences and feeling heard, which is, can be the start of change. I think, I think a big issue is that since 9-11, we have very much associated uh, our uh, religious faith with support of our nation. Mm. And what that does is it puts us in a posture where it's very difficult to be critical of our nation's politics and um, uh, helping us to truly discern the brokenness in our communities. Because 
uh, uh, we can't kind of get outside of our own perspectives. And, and, I'm, and what I mean kind of deeply about that is um, I'm not sure I agree that it is uh, the most spiritual hour because I'm not sure that many people still go. Uh, but uh, what I would say is that um, what church has become, is, uh, whether it's uh, a synagogue, um, mosque, uh, or a Christian church, in many ways in this country, according to American Grace, is a place, a book entitled American Grace, is a place in which you go to have your uh, ideas about what you think affirmed. Mm. And, and we hear this uh, when uh, anybody in a pulpit challenges uh, the, the predominant idea of what that means from the pulpit. Now, uh, statistically, preaching from the pulpit politics doesn't work. Um, uh, that's a, that's a, a statistical truth. Actually, what works is uh, sitting around a table or working together or doing things together, uh, taking people along with you to do good works. It actually, the kind of deep-rootedness of, of being a friend to a neighbor, and, a, and we define neighbor as those people who are a lot like us, but our traditions all talk about neighbor being somebody who's completely different than us. And so being, uh, taking care of our neighbor or loving our neighbor is far beyond our comfort zone. And so it's just to say that I actually think part of the issue is that we, are, we live in these tribal religious islands, uh, diasporas, if you will, separate from the culture and the reality of the, the vast majority of people's lives. Uh, how many people have to work on Sunday morning? How many people are just scraping by with three jobs and can't go to church? Mm -hmm. So, uh, so this, I'm just saying that I think there's a, there's a very deep connection between how we go and we think this is an opportunity, but this is really some of the problem uh, in many ways. And how do, how do we as leaders in these groups, of course, in a hierarchical tradition, it's a little easier, but how do we protect those uh, uh, amongst us who are speaking a good word uh, on behalf of those who have no voices. Uh, and how are we going to do that together? I think this is very important, especially when we get to reconciliation pieces. I am determined we're going to take like two more questions. I'm so sorry. Um, who's a lady? Uh, there. Hi. Oh. Uh, yeah. um, so something I've wrestled with for a long time in my young 33 years, but is the, you know, the hypocrisy of the pro-life movement and how we'll do everything to protect that baby while it's in utero, but the minute it's out, like, good luck. And in fact, we'll create harm to that human. Um, some priests, obviously, as you've mentioned, but obviously our policies too. So mm -hmm. I guess I've always tried to broaden that definition of pro-life, um, yeah. but do you think that there is political power in that messaging? Do you think we would ever get to that point where that definition could be expanded? I think especially for a younger generation where we don't see these lines as clearly and we want to think more holistically and inclusively. Absolutely. Uh, I myself have also been very active on death row. Mm. Uh, I worked, uh, when I was in Tennessee, I worked, uh, the, you know, the Green Mile the, on that uh, Tennessee death row for 16 years. And some of my closest friends, uh, please pray, by the way, we have an they have an execution coming up. It's a we, actually. I would take yeah. that we yeah. have an execution. Yeah, coming up. Uh, please pray. In this state, you know Texas is numero uno in executions. It's gross. It's barbaric. Uh, it's, uh, to answer your question, I hope and pray 
many of us are trying to expand that definition, that pro-life means across the board, consistent ethic of life, seamless garment. For heaven's sakes, if you're going to be really pro-life, be against abortion, but you better get out there and you get better get, speak out against capital punishment. We should have done away with it hundreds of years ago. And I actually want to call attention to this. I almost said something about this when you were talking about being pro-life in our kind of introductions. But to me, it says a lot that you seem obviously willing to work with those who don't agree with you on the specific oh, issue absolutely. of abortion. And I think that's what the future is. Because yeah. you, I mean, because what turns people off from right. is Go ahead. I don't know how, oh, right. how specific can we be in, in this um, <laughs> no I just I mean I just think that's interesting we, that, that the church I was in before I came here we sent three bus loads to the Obama inauguration uh, I belong to an organization called Democrats for Life I'm on the Democratic National Committee uh, <laughs> Amy, I, well let's work together yeah. let's work together and I think it can happen. I think we could kind of come up with uh, a consistent ethic of life that will unite America. And, uh, and you're willing to work with people until that, even if that doesn't happen, you are willing to work with people who agree with you on some things. Uh, yes, obviously you're obviously, doing it. Yes, was, he's doing it. He's doing the, it, and you're doing it. I was in the it. convention in yeah. 2012. Right. So I, okay. I hope so. Yeah. Um, uh, one more question. I'm so sorry, I should have left more time. So I'm a person of faith with friends and family on both sides of the party line. And I recently invited a family member to coffee that um, has different political views than myself. They declined. And so my question is, you mentioned that you have a congregation with people with many differing views. How do we facilitate those conversations with the people in our um, immediate realm to begin with and then hopefully have a broader conversation? Um, I think if, if your goal in having those convert in being in relationship with those people is to have that conversation, you need to be really explicit about why you want to have that conversation. If your goal is to change their mind or show them why you are right and try to, you know, and why they're not seeing things clearly, I don't think you're going to, none of us are going to succeed. But if your goal is to be in relationship with them on the terms that are, are doable, then you have a chance of having you know, a real relationship. Just like Anna Marie and her husband at least initially said, we don't, we're not going to talk about politics until we can figure out a way to do that in a caring and productive way. Um, I have family members as well, right? And, and you can either say, I just can't talk to you anymore, period, or... I want to talk to you, but I want to talk to you about family or music or theater or a good book that I just read or some delicious food that I just like and find the things you do have in common. Like, you know, in the political realm, we do this in organizing all the time is that you get together with different faith leaders and people in those communities and you find the things you agree about and you work on those things and you do agree to not have the conversation. Like we're not going to have a conversation about pro-life and, and pro-choice if we want to work together on immigration because we agree on immigration but we really strongly disagree on a woman's right to choose right so we're not going to have that debate because it's not going to be fruitful to the greater the the other issue we want to accomplish so we'll work on that we'll 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 put that other thing aside for a different time so with your family with my family I may choose not to have that conversation because I want to have a conversation and if they know I only want to engage with them 
to show them how much I know and how I'm right, because I am, and they're not, right? <laughs> Uh, then, then it's, you know, we're going to continue to butt, butt heads. So that would be my advice is to say, I want to have coffee with you just because I miss you yeah. and we make each other laugh or I want to talk about memories or I want to catch up on mutual people we have in common. You know, be really explicit about what the goal is for that coffee. Let's, we have to wrap up. Let's keep it quick. But I want to hear from both of you on this too. If you must, if you, unless she covered it. She, she did. I, I was just saying, if both of you really have covered that issue of friendship and relationships so beautifully. I, I, I'm, I'm evangelized by you. <laughs> uh, I'm converted, and um, the, the more, uh, the more I, I feel the need now to reach out more uh, through relationship and, and friendship. And I'll close by, I feel like I didn't close the loop about why I actually started my podcast after this stuff happened with my husband, is what I realized in the experience I had with my husband was that listening to him was the most powerful thing I could do. And that I've learned this magic phrase that I tell people all the time. People call into my show and write emails saying a version of what you've said. Like I have a, a brother or a sister or a friend that we, we've, we've discovered we disagree terribly on something. Or even more common, they said something specifically that's upsetting to me. You know, a racist thing. Uh, they misgendered me. They, you know, whatever. I always point out, if you can take it, if you're in a place where you can hear it, which people aren't always, and I don't want to put it on people who are in marginalized places to do this, but if you're in a position to hear it, the most amazing thing in this magic word you can say, you can say, why do you feel that way? Mm -hmm. it, it, opens, it opens an amazing door in someone's heart just to say, to be heard. And so. Oh, no, I, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> no, that, that is a nice way of ending, actually. And thank you for sharing a bit of, I mean, sometimes moderators are really focused on, you know, the, the topic, we're going to drive it, get, sometimes they want to get us to fight. That's a big thing, oftentimes. And so I wanted just to say and appreciate the fact that you shared your story, you became part of the conversation. <laughs> it's actually been a delight to be with you today. Thank you. Well, absolutely. We're all... We'll be changing numbers and everything. Anyway, thank you guys so much. Thank you. You've been listening to a conversation about faith, politics, and policy recorded live at Capital Factory in Austin. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Conversations with the Texas Tribune. Visit texastribune.org slash events for more information about our public interviews. And if you like what you heard on this podcast, please be sure to rate us as awesome on your favorite platform and tell your friends about us. Until next time, this is Evan Smith.